For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast brought to you by The Nation magazine. Since 1865, this is the oldest magazine in the country, yet also the freshest in terms of analysis. You got to check it out, thenation.com. It's there for you. Now let's start the show. I'm really excited about this one. Let's go. Trans athletes in sports and the book that explains it all today on Edge of Sports. A champion is bred from hard times, scarred mind standing on the ledge. The squad grind all time, victory in spite of opposition. Welcome to competition. You pick a side, I pick a side, they pick a side. Take a knee against abuse, they rather you die. Pushing through dark tunnels, trying to shed light. The fight is on the moment we enter the game of life. Get it right before the whole thing gone dead. Let's go ahead and take it dead. Meet me on the edge. Welcome to Edge of Sports TV, only on the Real News Network. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we talked to Katie Barnes about their book, Fair Play, How Sports Shape the Gender Debates. It's the study of trans athletes that many of us have been waiting for, covering the fight for inclusion in the sports world and what that could and should look like. Also, I have choice words about why the public financing of stadiums keeps happening and it's frankly little more than corporate theft writ large. And on Ask a Sports Scholar, we have a true star, Professor Tracy Canada, to speak about her cutting-edge work about the racial economy of college football. But first, Katie Barnes. Katie Barnes, thank you so much for being with us here on Edge of Sports. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, me too. So the process of you writing Fair Play, you know, it took several years, and the political climate has gotten so much uglier for trans kids during the time that you were writing the book with the politics of exclusion becoming codified in state after state. How challenging was it for you to write this book amidst the changing political landscape? It was incredibly challenging. Um, And that is true on a couple of fronts. Um, There's The first in that it's technically very difficult to write a book, which is a long-term medium (laughs) while there's an active news event occurring. Um, And so, you know, even now, right, that there are things that are in the book that are out of date um, just because enough time has passed since I finished writing. Um, And so that is technically challenging. Um, But then, of course, for me, as I set out to write the book, because of the nature of the climate and the landscape shifting, the book also shifted mm. um, pretty considerably in the course of the reporting and writing process. And then on a personal level, you know, as somebody who is non-binary, um, you know, living in the world and sitting in this space and reporting on it, while also feeling like people that I'm in community with um are being targeted by legislation um that's a hard thing mentally and emotionally as well i want to dig a little deeper into something you just said uh the reactionary fervor around the issue of trans exclusion particularly in the world of sports although of course not exclusively in sports did it alter your thesis or conclusions at all for the book i think at least for me as the writer, there is a place where I feel like my tone changes. And maybe it's because I wrote it. So I feel like I can see, oh, this is where I I could tell what years I wrote which chapter, right? Um, and I also think that even culturally in our own climate, like there was a fulcrum that we experienced as well. And for me, that was Leah Thomas, where even though, yes, you know, there were nine states that already passed legislation, 10 if you count the executive orders out of South Dakota um, by the time Leah Thomas dove into the pool in the fall of 21. But after her 
and her success and that story. I describe it in Fair Play as being a radicalizing event. And I think that is true for a lot of people. I think it kicked the issue into the mainstream um, in a way that I had not experienced before as a reporter, which led to additional scrutiny for me. And I think as I was finishing the book, it was on the heels of that. And so, um, you know, there's a, there are places where I can tell I wrote it after Leah um, and after that story. Um, and so, yeah, like, I, I don't necessarily think the thesis of the book changed. I think that um, the urgency uh, shifted a bit. And I think um, the strength of my own perspective shifted a bit as well. Mm, to, to stay on Leah Thomas for a second, some of the trans people that I was in dialogue with at the time, some of them were saying, you know, go Leah, you know, th this is what we want. We want this in people's faces, that we exist. But I also spoke to trans people who said, oh boy, are we really ready for this right now? Are we ready as a movement to deal with what's coming our way because of this? What What was your response when Leah first hit that pool and, and the, the reactionary fervor really did hit a high thrum? Yeah, you know, I don't know if I had a, an individual response, so to speak. In that moment, I was very in in my mode as a journalist where I recognized the size of the story mm -hmm. and my immediate Im impulse was, we have to go cover. I've got to go cover this. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the intersection of Leah Thomas having her success and that, um, you know, real like just drumbeat of like just wave after wave after wave of coverage that she experienced from a range of outlets um, meshed with the legislative session of 2022. I think for me as an individual who is also a journalist, um, that was when I experienced just like a real mental health decline mm. um, just from really sitting in it, if that makes sense, that that was a real tough time for me. Um, but my overall, but that had nothing to do with like my personal response to, you know, whether or not Leah should swim. I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't really have an opinion about that, but I was hearing similar co conflicts that you were hearing um, in terms of the differing perspectives of folks, the fear that I was feeling build within queer and trans communities, within those advocacy communities. Um, there was a lot of concern about what this would mean. And I think it turned out that some of those concerns were founded. Yeah. What would you want to say to the people who have decided that keeping trans kids off the playing field is just going to be their political mission in life? <laughs> you know, I don't know if it's for me to say, um, you know, about somebody's political mission or, you know, because they're legislators for a reason. A lot of them are elected. But I think there's a wider group within the public who have questions, who don't know how they feel about it, or maybe their impulses to feel, oh, it makes sense to me that trans girls shouldn't play girl sports. Um, and I think to those folks, and a lot of them are people for whom I wrote Fair Play, um, is to enter the conversation with openness, with a desire to learn and have those questions answered. I think a lot of times, I found this in my reporting, um, folks really feel like this issue is incredibly straightforward, that the quote, science is settled, end quote. Mm. Um, and it's much more complex and nuanced than that, especially when we're talking about different competition levels. Um, and so I think there are a lot of folks who want to look at someone like Leah Thomas and elite athletes as a means of justifying restrictive policy for young people. Um, but I don't think that in we would find that to be appropriate in other settings um, in terms of the kinds of eligibility criteria that we place on Olympians. We don't do that for seven-year-olds. Um, and so why are we doing that in this case? And those are often the questions I ask when I'm having those conversations with folks. Um, and I actually, in my reporting, have found that a lot of people don't recognize how broad the legislation is. They think it is about college athletes, where it's about high school athletes or really competitive sports. 
And much of the legislation does encompass those boarding levels, but it also goes down to kindergarten in some states and all the way up through collegiate intramurals in other states. And that's incredibly broad legislation. Yeah. How about chess? Oh, yes. And then there's the chess federation. Right. Uh, Unbelievable. Uh, in, In your mind, how would you just touched on this, but I'd love to go a little deeper in your mind. How would sports look if we actually practiced inclusion and didn't deny kids the ability to play? Yeah, I think that's a really great question because ultimately I think the focus on such restriction is really limiting our ability to be creative with what sports Mm -hmm. could look like at varying levels of sport, at varying levels of competition. Um, One of the things I cover in Fair Play is the idea of maybe having mixed sports longer, just co-ed sports longer. We don't delineate by gender and we let all kids play together regardless of gender identity until puberty. Um, And a lot of times we don't do that. Like I remember growing up playing soccer in the second grade and I played on a girl's soccer team. And did that need to happen when we were all seven, eight years old? I think a lot of folks would say, no, it doesn't need to happen physiologically, but we separate by sex for sports very, very young. And there's a lot of really interesting cultural work that could happen if we didn't. Um, And so I think that's a really good question. You know, I do think um, that when it comes to elite sports and, you know, super competitive sports, there's a reason we separate by sex. And largely, I think those reasons are founded to a point. Um, But there are a lot of way, there are a lot of places where, you know, we might be able to be more creative in our thinking about what an inclusive sporting apparatus looks like. And inclusion doesn't just mean for transgender girls and girls sports. It means for kids of all genders and all sports. It means for kids of all abilities in all sports, of all socioeconomic backgrounds in all sports. Our youth sporting apparatus in particular is becoming incredibly exclusive. Mm-hmm. And that's not just for, um, you know, not just in terms of restrictive policy for transgender children. Um, it also means we have, there's a lot of smarter people than I who are writing about pay to play and youth sports. Um, it's a big problem. And I think we're really limiting ourselves from having these more creative uh, conversations and rethinking what sports for young people could look like. Mm. What do you think we should be saying to people? And by the way, one of the brilliant things about Fair Play is the way it's written in a way that's going to connect with people that do have questions about this. And it's going to fortify people who are trying to you know, argue for inclusion because it's got so much great reportage. And we're, we're going to get to some of the reportage in a second. But I, I want to ask, what do you say to people who say, all right, I'm with you on uh, being more creative in youth sports. I'm with you for more inclusion, but only up to a point. When you get to the point very specifically of, and this is how they put it, biological males in women and girls spaces, what do you say to them? I tend to spend a lot of time asking why they feel the way they feel. Mm. And I think also when it comes to, in particular, like when you say spaces, I'm assuming locker rooms and bathrooms. Um, You know, when people have, there's this renewed focus on locker rooms and bathrooms. um, And I often ask, what do you think happens in a locker room? Right? Mm. Like, you know, if the question is privacy, right? Like, oh, I don't want to shower next to somebody in a communal shower well that's fair i don't want to shower next to anyone in a communal shower like i don't think that's a fun time and i don't think i would imagine most people don't enjoy that and so if we're talking about privacy and making sure that people have space um and don't have to be nude in a way that makes them uncomfortable well, then I think that we should just have more privacy for more people. That to me feels like a separate issue than whether or not a transgender woman should be in that space. When it comes to bathrooms in particular, again, I ask, what do we think happens in bathrooms? Um, And there seems to be this like real hyper focus on a particular experience that preys on fear um, in these spaces. And that fear is of predators. You know, it's not of transgender women. And that doesn't mean that there isn't a transgender woman who is a predator. Like there are examples of um, 
individuals being predators of all identities. It's not, the point is that it's not exclusive to transgender women and it shouldn't be presented as such. Um, and so that to me, you know, I, I tend to spend time asking those questions. What are we afraid of and what's the actual issue? Um, and trying to really unpack that because when it comes to sharing space with one another, I, I just don't, like to me, that doesn't feel like it is the most pertinent issue. Um, although I recognize that for some, it feels like it is, it feels very urgent. Um, but I often don't necessarily think that those fears are founded um, in evidence-based reality. It's difficult for me to not hear the echo of the 1940s when one of the arguments made against integration in Major League Baseball was the idea of black and white men in the same shower and even members of the Brooklyn Dodgers raising objections to Jackie Robinson showering with the players. I don't know. Maybe that's one of those history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme moments. Mm -hmm. But it, it, it is it does seem to be this this line for people that just for me feels very loaded with prejudice. Um, you, you've mm -hmm. mentioned reportage several times, and that's the thing people got to know about fair play is that it is filled with great reportage. I mean, anybody out there who's a journalism student needs to read Fair Play, even if you've never thought about this issue before, just by its use of the craft of journalism. I was wondering if you could share one story from Fair Play that you looked into, that you turned your journalistic eye towards, that you think is a helpful lens for this issue. Yeah, I think for me, I immediately go to... Um, the runners in Connecticut It's chapter seven in the book and Connecticut is often referred to in shorthand as, um, you know, sort of the initial outburst around and the catalyst for legislation. And that actually is that holds up in terms of reporting. Um, but often it's presented in ways that I think are rife with misinformation. It doesn't give the full scope of what actually happened in the state. Um, and so I have reported on Andrea Yearwood, who's one of the transgender girls who competed in the state of Connecticut at the high school level from 2017 to 2020, um, since she was 14 years old. Uh, she is going to graduate from college next year. So it's a long time uh, wow. for me to have known her. Um, and, you know, I've also you know, reported around um, the plaintiffs in the state of Connecticut who uh, filed a federal lawsuit challenging the inclusive, po the transgender inclusive policy um, at the Connecticut High School Association level. And so in terms of having a well-rounded picture of what did happen, what did not happen, um, what races we're talking about, um, you know, I really wanted to take the time to actually dive into all of the context around um, this initial conversation, because I think, as I said earlier, a lot of people, when they think of transgender athletes, they think of Leah Thomas. Um, but Andrea Yearwood and Terry Miller, the other transgender athlete competing in Connecticut, um, you know, really, um, you know, th their success in this state uh, inspired the original um, bill out of Idaho, HB 500. It's why Barbara Ehart wrote her bill. Um, and also, you know, that's how Alliance Defending Freedom got involved in terms of filing the Title IX complaint in um, in the summer of 2019, filing that federal lawsuit in 2020, while also helping Barbara Ehart craft HB 500 um, and having a hand in crafting a lot of the legislation that we've seen filed across the country. Um, that doesn't happen. That ha all happened before Leah Thomas, um, and it happened, um, you know, really beginning with Connecticut. Mm. Do you think Leah Thomas was partly a target paradoxically because of whiteness? Because there had been a lot of criticism of the anti-trans forces by how how racist a lot of their targeting seemed to be of non-binary and trans athletes. And you saw a lot of that in how Andrea Yearwood was discussed and portrayed. And I, I always felt like, okay, it's gonna mute that part of this movement because it's Leah Thomas. I don't know. Mm. I, I, that, that's something that, just, as you were talking, I was just thinking about, like, like that that, that it, it prevents, a, it, it sort of stops a constituency from saying, "Wait a minute, this is also, this is also racist in terms of targeting and and what, what how we perceive of femininity and how whiteness is seen as the primary lens for understanding femininity." I just throwing that out there. Yeah, no, I appreciate the question. I think, I mean, I have had, um, you know, one anti-trans activist 
um, say as such to me, essentially, mm -hmm. that Leah Thomas's uh, demographics um, blunted the criticism. Um, you know, however, I will also say that I think in the fall of 2021 didn't matter. There are a lot of things that would not have mattered in terms of um, the identities that a transgender that a transgender woman in particular held if she was successful in a sport. Um, at that point in time, I think it was really a powder keg. It, it would not have mattered. The fact that there was a Division One athlete who's a transgender woman who had not participated in women's sports prior to that year, um, who then was going to challenge for a national championship, um, that was you know a powder keg of a story. Um, and so I think both things can be true, um, and perhaps they both are. You know, but by, by sheer chance of life, I went to high school with Andrea Yearwood's aunt, and uh -huh. I went to college with Andrea Yearwood's dad. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Wait, you went to, oh, I know where you went to college then. God, yes. I didn't know that. Yes. I went to St. Olaf. I don't know if you knew that. But. I, are you kidding me? Of course I know St. Olaf. We're talking yes. associated colleges of the Twin Cities here. We love um, it. Yeah, MIAC as well. Um, yeah. My my, uh, my 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 question out of that is from your reportage: What kind of family does it take to really back your kids when they are faced with an entire legislature, lawsuits, all, all all of the slings and arrows that are coming after these kids? Yeah, some of the most emotional interviews I have done have been with parents of transgender athletes um, who are in the public eye and who have experienced just a tremendous amount of pushback. Um, you know, it takes a, a lot of strength and courage to withstand that. Um, you know, I think it displays a lot of love they have for their children um, and the support that they have of them. Um, because it doesn't matter who you are, if you're in the middle of just a public onslaught, like that's just a lot. Like there's no way around that. And then to also feel the weight of your state, right? Like whether you're Mac Beggs in Texas um, or Andrea Yearwood, who didn't experience, you know, the weight of Connecticut, but who was, you know, invoked in state after state um, in, uh, you know, 2021 in particular, um, or your Leah Thomas, who has not competed since the national championships of 2022 and yet is talked about almost every day. Mm -hmm. um, and that is just a tremendous amount of scrutiny that I don't think people really have like wrestled with what that means. Mm -hmm. And so for families, you know, it's really emotional. Um, and what I have seen from them, you know, is fear. Um, but also a lot of hope and because they receive support from their communities, hopefully in a lot of cases. Um, and just like a real, I think, desire to return to what their lives were like before, honestly. Wow. Uh, you know, we're in a moment right now, of course, where the eradication of trans existence is very mm -hmm. real in our politics. And I actually think your book could play a role in turning this around. Uh, your, your thoughts? Hmm. Well, it's very powerful. Thank you. I believe that. I think when it comes to being trans in this moment, there's so many things that I am proud of, of our greater community, um, our joy, our resilience, um, our hope in the face of um, just what a lot of people feel is a relentless onslaught. Um, and, you know, separate from my identity as a journalist who weighs all of these ideas, who seeks out multiple perspectives as a human, um, it's a hard time, you know, it just is. Mm. And what I have found in my time professionally is that a lot of folks simply, they just don't know what information to trust, I don't think. Mm. Um, they are unfamiliar with who we are as people, uh, with our language, and that unfamiliarity spurs fear um, and desire to push over here. Mm. Um, and my hope is that 
with continued engagement and, you know, with books like mine, um, like others that have come out and are coming out, um, that there will be, you know, a real seek to understand and development of empathy. Um, and hopefully, like all I ask of folks is just to approach all of these conversations with openness, compassion, and empathy. And I think if we can get there, then you know, we may see, um, you know, a, a capacity for understanding. We'll mm. see. You know, you're having to go out and do interviews like this one. Uh, are, are you finding it okay? This is this is fun. I wrote this book. I'm proud of it. Let's get it out there. Or is it kind of emotionally exhausting to have to to have to go through this, especially given the climate that we're in? You know, I think it depends. In general, I mean, yeah, I love talking about this. I'm so proud of yeah. this book. I'm proud of what it says. I'm proud of the work that is reflected in it. Um, I'm Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. So incredibly gratified by hearing the responses that people have had to it you know when you create something you and you put it out in the world you don't know how people will respond and if they're going to get what you are trying to do and from what i've been hearing from good faith reviewers consistently people are really getting it and that's really special um and so i really relish that opportunity to share the perspective of the book um, share my own perspective as a journalist and as a person I think anytime you put yourself out there, of course, it's nerve wracking and it's draining. Um, so there is a little bit of that too, but the good far outweighs um, any sort of mental and emotional tax I feel in the process. Awesome. And then just one last question for you. Everybody I know who's written a book has had to utilize music either for while they write or maybe just to chill out after they write. What has been your music, your soundtrack in the process of writing Fair Play? That's a really great question. So I listen to one song on repeat all the time when I'm writing, just nice. in general. The song changes, but I listen to one song. Um, and I would say that Fair Play is a product of three songs. Um, one is Jaren's by Young the Giant. Um, Wanted by One Republic, and the other is A Christmas Song by Mercy what? Me. It's called It's Christmas Time Again. It's my favorite. <laughs> I love it. Amazing. Okay, well, um, we might have to do like a little Spotify thing with the, the, the Katie Barnes Fair Play soundtrack. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that you made the time for this conversation. Thank you for writing the book. I meant what I said about it being a tool to turn this situation around. Really appreciate you coming on Edge of Sports. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. Really appreciate your support. And now some choice words. Okay, look, I thought this issue was mercifully dead. I thought so much data had come out over the last decade explaining why there's no economic or social benefit from building publicly funded stadiums that no one would dare again make the case that we should subsidize the playpens of billionaires. But like Freddy Krueger or Michael Myers or Donald Trump, just when you thought it was dead, it springs back to life. Right now, there are a host of new publicly funded stadiums on the precipice of going forward. Just to mention three, and believe me, I could have mentioned more. There's Wisconsin, 
where the state GOP wants to give the owner of the Milwaukee Brewers $600 million for stadium upgrades. The Wisconsin Democrats, in a show of strength, said $300 million. There's Oklahoma City, a place about as big as a moderately sized airport. They want their own $900 million package for a new stadium for the NBA's Oklahoma City Thunder, with political leaders saying that the team will move if they don't get a new arena. Because yes, how awful that would be for the people of that city to lose the Thunder. Let's please remember that they only have a team because they ripped the Sonics out of Seattle, so please spare us the violin. Then there are the stadiums already built and being built in Las Vegas as the 120-degree gambling hub that pro sports used to treat like Sodom and Gomorrah is now their mecca for public funding. In Vegas, schools, libraries, and hospitals will be starved so climate-controlled stadiums can leave a shack-sized carbon footprint. It makes no sense until you consider that the entire sports world is now being underwritten by DraftKings. Betting is the massive revenue stream for which the leagues have sold their already desiccated souls. And as a result, the capital of the sports world has become, improbably, Las Vegas. And somewhere probably in Reno, Pete Rose is saying, I can't get into the Hall of Fame. Why? But back to the original question. How is it, given all that we know about stadium funding, that these monuments to waste are still getting built with public dollars? I keep thinking of the words of one economist who studied the issue and wrote, a city would be better off dumping $1 billion from the sky onto its citizens' heads who could then scoop up the money and spend it than to use it for building a stadium. And please, don't say jobs are a reason to do it when stadium jobs are seasonal, often non-union, and part-time. A billion dollars can't fund a jobs program better than that? I think it could. So why do these stadiums keep getting built? There are reasons that I've heard, like, no mayor or governor wants to be remembered as the person who lost a team to another city. Or it's a great photo op for the leading politicians once it's built. That's what my buddy Jules Boykoff calls an edifice complex. And that's real. But the reason they get built above all else is that it's Trojan horse corporate welfare. Corporate welfare is very unpopular with the public. But a new stadium allows for political money laundering that magically turns public money private while most people are too enthusiastic about the new stadium to raise much of a fuss. It's also, given that most sports owners are to the right of Mussolini, a kind of political money laundering where our tax dollars enter the pockets of the dark money billionaires that own sports teams, and then those tax dollars become the private funder of causes most fans would find repellent like the DeVos family that owns the Orlando Magic. They are also a family that underwrites the radical, dominionist, Christo-fascist movement currently trying to turn back the last century. The DeVos-funded organizations like Focus on the Family, to use just one example, are funded in part with the stadium public financing they have received from the state. Of course, the DeVos family is also married into the Prince family, as in Eric Prince, as in Blackwater, as in a right-wing private army that has also received hundreds of millions of dollars in public money. You gotta hand it to them. The DeVos Prince family are true welfare royalty. And this political money laundering with our tax dollars, it needs to stop. So in the end, why do stadiums still get built with public funds? I guess it's just because thieves can never resist a good heist. And now on Ask a Sports Scholar from Duke University, thrilled to have her, total rock star in the field, Professor Tracy Canada. Professor Tracy Canada, thank you so much for joining us here on Edge of Sports. Thank you for having me. So let's get right to it. Your forthcoming book is called Tackling the Everyday, Race, Family, and Nation in Big Time College Football. What are you hoping to communicate with this text? 
Yeah, so this is a book that's forthcoming um, with the University of California Press. And the the thing that I write about is um, is Black college football players, right? Like I write about them, not necessarily about college football itself. And what I aim to argue in my book is that they have a very particular way of navigating these exploitative and extractive systems that they're a part of. Um, one system could be the university setting, right? Like as students, the ways that their experiences are structured by being the quote unquote student athlete. But the other system that I write about as well is college football itself, which is a multi-billion dollar system that is based on the uncompensated labor of, again, quote unquote, amateur athletes, right? And so what is that like for the, the overrepresented black college players that participate in the system? And so because I'm an anthropologist, I had the opportunity to spend immersive time with athletes, which meant spending um, lots of time just with them through their everyday lives, like going through classes, going to meals, being at games, just hanging out with them, just to really see the ways that they are navigating or tackling, right? Like it's a cute play on words, hmm. um, tackling their everyday lives. And so part of what I argue is about um, the ways that these systems are extractive, right? Like the, the actual ways that this happens. Um, they have lower graduation rates than other um, peers on campus. They have to deal with um, these horrible injuries sometimes and the ways that that impacts their bodies. They're quantified in very particular ways because of this intense pressure on their bodies. They have a very um, specific control around their time and what they're able to participate in. So there are all of these ways that they are being controlled and disciplined by football. But then on the other side, um, they are still like young men, right? Like they're having fun and they're hanging out and they have friends, they are caring for one another, they're caring for their families, they're caring for their mothers. And so I wanted to understand that dynamic between the two parts. Um, and one of the ways that, that also comes out is through the ways that they structure family, right? So a narrative that's constantly repeated in football is this idea of the football family. We see it with all these hashtags that colleges have, different colleges have different ways of kind of framing this. Um, we have something like the Falcons, which they call themselves the brotherhood. And so we see this language that's constantly incorporated into football, um, but it's, it's a type of family that's extractive that is only concerned with the player, right? Like it's not really concerned with the with the person um, because they need the player to perform. And so on the other hand as well, the other thing that I write about is the ways that players, black players themselves navigate that tension of this football family that's really just about um, how much they can produce. And instead they form um, these really, really caring and vulnerable relationships with other black players and also with their moms. And so to me, their moms are central to all of this. And so throughout the book, I try to explain the different ways that family and care come out um, and sometimes unexpected and sometimes like pretty traditional ways, but through their participation in college football. Wow. What I love about this approach and why I'm very excited to read this book is that question of immersion. Because, you know, mm -hmm. I've read books before that are just, you know, very welcome polemics about college football, polemics about the black athlete. But this question of immersion really has not been there. I think it's a missing link. Mm -hmm. uh, and but so in, through this immersion process, what did you, I'm sure you had certain assumptions and ideas going in. What, what did you learn that surprised you? Yeah, I definitely had lots of assumptions going into it, right? And that's part of what we're supposed to do kind of as anthropologists, right? Like you have certain ideas of what you think you're going to find and what you think people are going to say and what you think people are going to do. Um, and then usually none of that happens. And then you have to, you know, come up with a whole different set of questions and write a whole different dissertation than the one that you thought you were going to write. Um, and so when I was doing field work, um, which is what we call it um, in anthropology, when I was doing my field work, it was the 2017-18 football season. And I'm sure you know, you definitely know, um, that that was right around the time that Kaepernick was kneeling, right? And so I went in with a project about race, a project about gender. I was interested in youth, right? Because age does come into this in a very particular way. And I just knew everyone was going to be talking about Kaepernick, right? And these protests and what they were going to be doing and how they were interested in it or not, you know, like the critiques of it potentially. That's what I figured that people were going to be talking about specifically because of the issues that I'm interested in. And I was really surprised that that was not a topic of conversation, right? Like it wasn't something that they were as interested in as I was. Um, and what I found was that even though they weren't talking about his protest, 
um, which was linking to certain issues that they were talking about. They were just discussing it in different ways, right? And so they were dealing with their own issues of um, the ways that race plays out in these very particular ways, the ways that racism is apparent, the ways that anti-Blackness is woven into the system. They were dealing with it in their own ways that wasn't, they, they weren't necessarily linking up with um, the narrative that Cap was was talking about at the time, but they're all connected, right? And so I think that it was just really interesting to see the ways that that either um, became part of the conversation or wasn't, but also the ways that they they kind of made it their own, right? And so they were they were potentially taking elements from it, um, but just making it their own and making it something that they could relate to themselves. Um, and then eventually, it did move into a space where it was linking up with what was happening on a on a national scale and in the NFL. It just took some time, and I was just so surprised by how slow that move was. Wow, uh, I want to ask you about the plantation analogy to college football. Yeah. It's been made, for, for frankly, for decades. You can find players or commentators calling it a plantation, a neo-plantation. Taylor Branch said it had the whiff of the plantation. Mm -hmm. And it's always controversial when it's invoked. In what ways do you find it helpful, though, in explaining the institution of college football, if you find it helpful at all? I do find it helpful. Um, I am one of the scholars that writes about the plantation logics of college football. Um, that puts me in line with somebody like Billy Hawkins, who writes about the new plantation. But also, as you mentioned, other athletes like, let's say, Colin Kaepernick, who at the beginning of Colin in Black and White has a whole image of the ways that um, of the draft and how it links up with with plantation logics, right? Like, so it's it's been infused in a lot of these conversations for a really long time. You've been mentioned Taylor Branch, right? And he was one of the first ones. Also, um, with the with the executive director of the NCAA when he wrote his memoir, that's also mentioned right. there, right? Like the way that he is actually surprised by what happened um, with the way that he set up the NCAA. And so I do find it to be a really useful analytic, not only because we see the ways that racialized exploitation and capitalist accumulation go together, right? Like. College football is a billion dollar industry and it's based on the uncompensated labor of overrepresented black athletes, right? Like I've already said that and that I think is something that can't be argued. And so when you put the two of them together, that's a very distinct plantation logic that's happening, right? But there are other ways that it comes out as well. If we look at the ways that bodies are tracked and quantified in very specific statistical ways, right? Like all of the numbers that are attached to a football player's body, all of the stats, all of the records, um, that's one way. We see it in the way that um, if you look at the way that stadiums are built and there's this omnipresent gaze all the time, right? Like players are always being watched. They're always under surveillance. Um, there's also technological tracking that's now infused into sport, whether through apps that um, tell them where they're supposed to be, when they're supposed to be there, or um, technology that tracks their uniforms while they're on the field. This intense surveillance is part of it as well. If we look at the ways that some of these colleges used to be actually functioning plantations, right? Like it's infused into the space and into the space that they are constantly in, right? Like you're always in these football buildings, you're always on a field. And I think that the, the language of field is interesting here, right? Like I am a cultural anthropologist, but if we think linguistically about this, the language that we use to describe some of these things are really important. And so the fact that they are laboring on a field for free, I think we shouldn't get away from how important that is. All of these all of these things are, that are just normalized in college football, um, specifically in American football generally, but all of the ways that these are normalized in college football um, are infusing the sport with a particular logic that does link us black to plantation slavery, right? And I think that that's something that we really need to keep at the forefront of this if we're having conversations about labor exploitation, if we're having conversations about the ways that bodies are just being broken down and abused and exploited and kind of forgotten. Um, if we're thinking about like the machine, there's, there's a lot of machine um, metaphors that are used in this, right? Like the ways that players' bodies are used as machines and just kind of forgotten and thrown away. Um, the need to, to care for them in a particular way, um, care and keep them healthy enough so that they can play, but really that's the only intention behind it. A lot of this links us back to a very particular history. Um, and so I think that we just need to be conscious of that and put that at the center when we have young black men that are um, making the entire system go. Mm. You know, on the show a few weeks back, we had a representative of the College Football Players Association, mm -hmm. and their argument was, is that these college football players are doing a job and yeah. they should be paid and have medical benefits. Yeah. That this should, this, this should be union work. That doesn't negate going to class or also being students, but it does 
speak to trying to cut against some of the exploitation with which you discuss. Yeah. But I'm really curious about the people with whom you were immersed with, the people with whom you've spoken. Do you see these people as um, folks who would be attracted to the idea of a union? I think they would be attracted to the idea of a union. Um, so when I was doing field work, again, it was 2017 and 18 when I was immersed in this um, in this way that we do as anthropologists, right, when I was doing my dissertation field work. And so at that time, unionization wasn't really a topic of conversation, not, not with the people that I was working with. Um, and so it was really interesting to see the ways that they were um, potentially thinking about labor, but it wasn't at the forefront of their minds. And and also at the time, I was I was very interested in in the ways that race was mattering in their relationships. And so those were some of the conversations that we were having, right? So because it wasn't a national conversation, really at the level that it is now, and because I was asking about certain things, it didn't come up in, in the topical conversation. But you could tell by the ways that they were talking about their experiences that they were becoming aware of something going on, right? Like something was fishy and they were questioning it and they didn't really know what to do with it. And I think that that um, is is like is very important to this conversation, right? The ways that they are starting to think about it, and then potentially have that snowballs into something else. And so you take several years now into the future, where I am now, and I'm a professor, and I get to talk to athletes in my classes, and we talk about. Um, the other day, we were talking about Dartmouth's basketball program trying to unionize, right? When we have concrete examples like this that are at the forefront, where these athletes are being very explicit about what it is that they want and why it is really important you can see like I can almost see their minds working of like oh that'd be really interesting if that could work because yeah there are times when I think about what's going to happen to me when I graduate right like what if I do get seriously injured while I'm here and I can no longer play and I have put all of my energy into this one thing um, how am I going to be cared for how can I care for myself and how can I potentially care for my family if I have um, I've, I've relied on this sport for my entire life. And so even though those weren't conversations that were explicitly being had at the time, I could see it. I could see the beginning of it then. Um, this was also right after Northwestern had attempted to unionize their football team had attempted to unionize. So it was, it was kind of in the air, but I could see the beginning of it then. But now when we see how far we have actually gone with some of these ideas and the ways that um, social media has actually come into this, right? Like athletes across universities can talk to each other in ways that are a little bit different than they were in the past. I think there's a lot of excitement around it now. I just really think that someone has to do it first. And then once mm -hmm. it happens, then there will be a lot of movement around it. But I think that, um, and rightfully so, I think athletes are, college athletes are sometimes afraid of the consequences of some of these actions, right? But what I try to tell them is like, you have a lot of power. There's a lot that you can get done if you really want to especially if you come together across teams, right? Like if the teams on these different universities could be in conversation with one another, I think that would be a really interesting move, especially when we're thinking about unionization and labor. Mm. Now you're at Duke, of course. Uh, the football team is frisky yeah. this year. Uh, not, not something you're probably used to. And what does, I mean, do, are you feeling that on campus this fall? And if so, what what does that do to the vibe of a campus, for better or worse, when, when the football team becomes a, a topic of national conversation. Yeah, I mean, you you say that it's a topic of national conversation. We are recording on the day the game day is here, right? So game day yeah. is setting up on the other side of campus. <laughs> um, everyone has been talking about it all week. Everyone is really excited about it. And what I think is interesting is actually that football is starting to, to match the national attention that basketball gets here, right? And so for me, it's exciting because what does that mean when a school like Duke, which is a top academic institution, has these top athletic programs, there's a lot of potential there for someone like me who thinks that we just need to be critical of these systems that we're engaging in, right? Um, I don't think that that doesn't mean that we can't participate in them, um, but I do think that they could potentially be better for the people that have to participate and who want to participate, right? And so because of the things that I teach, because of the students that I'm engaged with and work outside of the classroom, um, it's really interesting to see the ways that they are talking about football, right? Like they're they're talking about it in, in part of a larger conversation with what's happening um, across the country, potentially with the portal, potentially with the ways that that COVID affected how long people are staying in school now. You know, like there's there's a there's a very particular conversation that I think happens amongst students that have classes with athletes, right? Like because they see them all the time. They see them that they, they see that they're just students. They live in the dorms with them. They eat in the in the dining halls. Um, so they have a very different view of 
of the students that are on these courts and fields rather than just what ESPN is showing. And so it is really exciting for the students to see all of this movement on campus, but then to hear how critical they can sometimes be of these systems, right? Like it's exciting to be on ESPN, but also this is my friend. And so how can I potentially protect him or her from some of the stuff that's happening when all of this excitement comes to campus? Like that's that to me has been a really interesting space to be in as a scholar who studies the intersection of these things. Wow. I, I really hope that you put something to paper about the experience of having game day on campus. Yeah. That would yeah, be for sure. <laughs> fascinating com coming from Professor Tracy Canada. Uh, you've been so generous with your time, but I got to ask, uh, I understand that you're starting, and I quote, a black feminist sports lab. Yeah. What What does that mean? <laughs> so I really appreciate this question because I'm so excited about it. It's something that um, I'm starting to get um, feedback from grants for, so I'm starting to get the money for them, um, for this for this lab that I'm putting together. I've called it the Health, Ethnography, and Race Through Sports Lab, so the Hearts Lab. And I imagine this is a space where scholars, where students, undergrad and grad, where athletes, where writers, where people in the local community can come together and talk about sport, which is something that um, people in the public talk about all the time in lots of different ways. And academics actually across lots of different disciplines have these conversations as well, but we're not often in conversation with one another. And I think sport is something that really lends itself to these types of public conversations and academic conversations. And what would it be if we were to all be in conversation together and we could all think about the ways that potentially the media and social media and fans and athletes themselves and scholars who are thinking about it in a different critical light, what would that look like if we were all in a room together um, through different ways? And so the, the idea of the lab is to have that at the heart of it, right? To have these um, really pressing conversations across multiple groups to allow for networking across groups groups, to allow for um, accessible publications to come out, for inclusive programming, for public lectures, so that people in the community, I'm in Durham, so people in the community, um, people at schools that are close by, right, like I've got some collaborations with colleagues at UNC and at State and NC Central, so what is that going to look like when we're all in a room together and being able to talk about this? Um, so ideally, it will fund a, a public lecture series, we'll have a working group, and then we'll also house all of the research projects, right, either my own um, or those of undergraduates and graduate students that are interested in some type of intersectional study of sport. Amazing. Could you say the name of your forthcoming book one more time, please? Of course I can. It's called Tackling the Everyday, Race, Family, and Nation in Big Time College Football. Cannot wait. Professor Tracy Canada, thank you so much for joining us here on Edge of Sports. Thanks for having me. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to our guest, Katie Barnes. Remember, the book is Fair Play. Thank you so much to Professor Tracy Canada. And thank you so much to the whole team here at The Real News Network. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Thank you so much for watching The Real News Network, where we lift up the voices, stories, and struggles that you care about most. And we need your help to keep doing this work. So please... Tap your screen now, subscribe, and donate to The Real News Network. Solidarity forever. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.